So this morning, um, we are starting a new series, and and I want to kind of give you a little bit of context for this. That um, this is this is a series that is basically coming out of what God has been walking me through, what God has been um, laying on my heart uh, throughout these last four months of of kind of what we've all experienced together and had our own maybe responses to them, but kind of this storm that we've been in and, and uh, what God has been pointing out to me about me and, and about the church and about the world in which we live. And so I would encourage you that for the next four weeks, really, uh, these, these Sundays really aren't complete um, without you getting the, the whole picture. So I would encourage you to make sure that you catch all all four messages, because they really are part of a whole. Um, yes, they, they live and stand on their own, because that's how Scripture works, but, but really, as, as I think through what God is communicating to me, what I believe I need to communicate with the church, um, we need to be all together. So if you miss a Sunday, that's all right, but kind of catch it online um, and watch it during the week so that you're kind of up, up to date. Uh, and also, um, just in the event that you think I'm picking on you as an individual or like that somebody told me something about you and now it's coming out in a sermon, just know that it's, that's not the case. This is kind of what God has been, been doing in me and, and challenging me with. And so if it, if it hits you where you're at, great, um, but I probably don't actually even know that you're there. Um, Somebody might, but uh, I don't. So, so I, I say you kind of, kind of stick with it. And I do believe that, that what, what God is, is calling us to, to, to understand and what he's been, been helping me to realize, I think has some significant direction and, and even just even how we function as, as a local body, um, what we are moving toward and that kind of thing. So I would encourage you to definitely, definitely check in and, and make sure you're part of that. Um, March 19th, 2020, is the day that, that our state gave the shelter-in-place order, um, when so many things that we, we experienced changed. And since then, as we all know, our country has shut down. Um, we've experienced growing tension, fear, and anger that results from uh, resulting in distance between people, not just physical distance, but distance uh, emotionally and, 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 and pe- between people and, and really virtual and physical unrest. Um, I say virtual because there's a lot of virtual unrest out there and there's a lot of physical unrest. And so that probably is a fairly accurate description of our world and our society. It's interesting because we would, we would say that, that really the church should look different than society and, and, and it should because we have Jesus and what's interesting about the church is that, that over these past number of months, the church has had to kind of adapt and change the vehicle of our message. We haven't changed our message, but we've had to change the vehicle of our message because of the, uh, the different requirements in, in meeting and, and not meeting. Um, we've adapted in other ways to temporarily uh, adjust how we connect with each other, um, how we do ministry, we've still been doing ministry, but we've had to adjust and adapt. It's interesting, though, that, that what I described about society 
that uh, the church has experienced, really it seems like, the same degree of tension and fear and anger as the rest of society. Um, it seems like the church should be doing better, but as I watch the world interact with each other and I watch people within different body, the body of Christ and in different churches interact with each other, there's not a whole lot more unity. There's not a whole lot more agreement. There's not a whole lot more, maybe less, less uh, hard line stance. And so really, it's, it's not a shame on us because there's a reality that, that today people are exhausted, anxious, combative, and somehow both confident and hesitant at the same time. Have you seen that? Like people are super confident of what they think and in the same moment they're, they're almost hesitant. And, and I don't know if you identify with that. And if you don't, then I don't know what you're on. Um, but, but if you, I mean, I, I identify with those things. Um, it, it, we don't, we, I just, it, if we just live in, in a time where uh, we tend to agree with what we already think. We tend to draw conclusions about others with minimal input. Uh, and really, I guess to summarize, I mean, it seems like just our society is very much a mess right now. But here's a couple of things that I want us to remember about God in history. In history going back and history present and history moving forward. That number one, God is sovereign over human history. That's a fact. God is sovereign over human history. And the second thing is this, that God's intent is to forgive people and transform them to reflect the character and the work of Jesus. And those two things, the context of human history, wherever point you are at in human history, that doesn't change these two things. That doesn't affect these two things. Whatever time frame that we live in, where we live today, or those who lived years and years ago, or those who will live sometime in the future, whatever's going on doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign over human history and that God's intent is to forgive people and transform them to reflect Jesus. Here's the other thing that's true, and this isn't necessarily about God, but this is about the world in which we live. All the influences and I'm using all in the most, the most basic definition of all, meaning all, everything, nothing, no exceptions, all the influences in the world are predisposed to make you more like them, all of them. The systems that we would say are good, the structures we would say are good and the systems and structures that we would say are bad are predisposed to make you more like them. So they're all working that way. God is working to make you more like Jesus. And so we need to understand that every system, every structure, every philosophy, every, every brand of politics, all of it is contrary to what God is trying to do in you. So we have to recognize that. That doesn't mean all of everything within those things are bad, but we can't let those things conform us. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be actually looking at Hebrews chapter 10 today, but in Hebrews chapter 1, the first few verses, 
the author of Hebrews says that, that, that God communicates with his people. He says over time, God has communicated through different ways. He says sometimes through the prophets, but he says in these last days, God has communicated through his son, Jesus Christ. And so, so as, as I've kind of walked through this time, I believe that the Holy Spirit has directed me to some realizations about myself and about the church. And over, as I said, the next four weeks, I'm going to be sharing these things with you, and, and I believe that they'll have impact on how we move forward as a church. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to walk through this, this chapter this morning. And um, we've, we've called our, our series Our Inheritance. And, and the reason we did is because as we walk through these next few weeks, we're going to be seeing things that, God, that are ours because of the inheritance that God has for us, because we're God's children. And the thing about an inheritance, especially as given in Scripture when we become Christians, is that some of those things that are part of our inheritance are immediately available to us. For example, part of our inheritance as those who have come to Jesus is forgiveness and being made worthy. And so, so those things happen immediately. We don't have to wait to see those things realized. And so there's a lot of things that, that we get now in our inheritance, and then there's some things that we wait for. For example, the redemption of our bodies waits till we see God in heaven. I mean, how many of us realize that our bodies are not redeemed yet? They are kind of a mess. And so, and so like, that hasn't happened yet. And so, so there's, but there are some things that we have now as our inheritance that we aren't really grabbing onto and taking full advantage of today. And so that's part of what we'll be talking about each week is this idea of what our inheritance is. And, and so this morning, um, let me begin by reading, reading in chapter 10, starting at the beginning here. Uh, the author writes this, and, and, and the author of, of Hebrews is writing to Jews who have become Jesus followers. They have a really great understanding and knowledge of their faith. They have a great understanding of, of especially the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law. And they've become Jesus followers. They have, they have surrendered their lives over to Jesus, saying that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so they are Jewish believers, and, and the author's writing to them. And he says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, he's saying that the law was never something that was the main thing. It was always a shadow pointing towards something that was the good thing to come, which was Jesus Christ. So he goes on and he says, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law, and they knew this because they, they knew their Jewish roots and they knew the Old Testament. And so, so the idea is that, that that law could never make someone perfect to draw near to God's presence. Verse 2, otherwise they would have not, otherwise uh, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. That if they offered a sacrifice, that actually 
cleansed them, made them clean, forgave them of their sins, they wouldn't have to keep offering sacrifices. He says in verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, every time you're reminded, I'm sinful, I'm sinful, I'm sinful, a debt that I can't pay. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices or offering and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And so here's, here's basically what we are reading in, in Hebrews chapter 10, that Jesus is not a part of our inheritance. He is the totality of our inheritance. We get Jesus because of what God did. He is the beginning and the end, the past, the present, and the future, and our hope of fulfillment. He's all those things. Jesus is enough. He is our inheritance. The law was good. It was from God, but it was never able to save nor be idolized, put up on a pedestal, but it was simply to point to Jesus. In the law, we had to do these repetitive acts, and they were ineffective to actually deal with sin. The law was like the first Band-Aid. It didn't actually fix anything. It just covered and made it so that you couldn't see it for the time that it was there. But it was still there, and it didn't actually bring any healing. I mean, we realize that when we're like maybe eight or 10 years old, that Band-Aids don't actually fix us. They just keep it, us from seeing them, and then we're not upset because we see the, you know, the, the, the trauma. But, but that's basically what the law was. But listen to what he says as, as he goes through and he talks through the law and the sacrifices and, and, and it pointing to Jesus. In verse 10, listen to what he says. And he says, and by that will, the will that God had for Jesus, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That Jesus, next to Jesus, there is nothing more to do. Jesus, once and for all, has been the sacrifice that gives us forgiveness, pays for our sins, if we're willing to accept his offer. That there's no more offering, sacrifices, decisions, actions to be made that will pay for my sin or pay for your sin. That it's through his offering we've been sanctified and once and for all, no more, that's it. That's the end of it. And that is our inheritance that no longer do we have to work or produce or do anything or give anything that will somehow cover or pay for our sins. Jesus has done that and that is available to us today that we are forgiven and we are being sanctified. And, and here's, here's, here's more. In, 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 verse, in verse 11 it says, every, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ 
had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's the timeline. Christ's sacrifice, which was done in the past, and then from then, there's a waiting period, which is the time that we are in transformation. That's the, if, if we were on a map, it would say you are here in this waiting period, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, and it says that he's, he, for a time, from then time, eventually, all his enemies will be put as a footstool at his feet, that there will ultimately, after this time that we're in, be a final visible victory with no insurgency. No one left hiding out to, to, to jump out and say, see, you didn't get me. I can make a mess of this whole thing. That there will come a day that it will be fully and finally realized. The author goes on and he says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no, more, there is no longer any offering for sin. And basically, he, sa- he says this. He says that he will put No longer will it be a law on a page or a document. It will be a law that is written inside on their hearts and on their minds. It's this whole idea. I mean, that's kind of what that spirit of repentance that we've talked about a little bit. And so so we understand that our inheritance is Jesus, and with Jesus comes a number of things. And so starting in verse 19, because of Jesus and him being our inheritance, we have certain rights that come with Jesus, that we experience today, that we experience in our inheritance today. And the first thing is, as we move forward, we see in verse 19, it says, therefore, in other words, because of Jesus sanctifying us once and for all, there's no need for anything else. Because of that, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's no place off limit to us because we are children of God By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's our first right that we have in Christ as part of our inheritance. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we have a right to draw near. If I am in Christ Jesus, if I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then what that means is that I have a right to draw near to God. That God can't say you can't be here because I have Jesus. That I have a right to draw near. That I can be confident in my worth even though ultimately I'm really not that worthy of anything I can be confident, we can be confident in our worth in approaching and appealing to God. That we can be close to God without any fear of judgment 
or punishment. See, God's presence is with us, and his presence is the foundational promise of the whole Bible. His presence is what all the other promises hinge upon. So in Christ, part of our inheritance is you and I have the right to draw near to God. Secondly, we have the right to hold fast. Look at verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. We have the right to hold fast to the hope that we have that comes from faith. And here's the thing. I'm not going to unpack what that is today because that actually is unpacked in, verse, in chapter 11 next, uh, in a couple of weeks. And, and, and the reason we can have this, this hold fast to our confession of our hope is because of God's faithfulness, again, which is unpacked in chapter 11, which we'll talk about later. But just know that as a Jesus follower, part of your inheritance is that you can hold fast to that faith. And the third thing is in verse 24 and 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so what he says here is that we have the right to consider how we stir others to love and to good works. Like God hasn't said, this is how you have, the, the, the actions that you take, this is how you have to love, stir other people to love and to good works. He says, you can consider how you do that because you're, 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 you have the right to stir other people to love and good works. But you have to figure out how you're gonna best do that in the context in which you live. And so the right that we have is, is that we are then stirring people to love and good works. My question and the, the thing that the Holy Spirit kind of brought to my attention as I've been walking through all of this stuff is this. What is my behavior and what is my language stirring other people up to? Are the things that you post online or the things that you say in your conversations with people are the things that, that you are focusing on, do those, what do those stir up in other people? Does that stir up love and good works in them, or does it stir something else? Because honestly, a lot of the things that I see and that I feel are not stirring others up to love and good works. And so it's like in some ways we are ignoring that which is presently available as part of our inheritance. It's interesting that over the last month and a half, I've heard all over, I think, the country, churches and, and pastors and, and people who go to church and people who follow Jesus have been quoting Hebrews 10.25, where it says, uh, not neglecting to meet together as it is, is, is the habit of some, and, and it's interesting that, that that's been the argument that we should just meet together as, as a body and, and say, you know, whatever, whatever the government may say about gatherings, that we just go ahead and do this no matter what. And it's interesting because in the context of, of what this is talking about and to the people that are being written to, these again are Jewish Jesus followers who will find shortly have experienced hardship and suffering and persecution 
in the past, and they are actually, we'll find in chapter 12, that they are headed for a more significant time of suffering. And so what's happened to these people, these Jewish believers, is they've come through a time of suffering, and they, they are looking ahead to say, there's going to be more, and so I'm not sure Jesus is really where I want to be. And so they've, they've made it through one set of suffering, and they say, I don't want this. I don't want more suffering. So they say, you know what, I think we're out. I mean, I kind of thought that I really like the idea of forgiveness, and I like the idea of not having to continue to offer offerings over and over and over. But this whole suffering thing and what I've endured and the fact that it's coming again, for those reasons, I'm out. And they're walking away. And so he says, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Those who are saying, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. That's different from not being able to meet. It's losing the desire to meet and grow and become like Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's not talking about a context where you're told that you can't meet for a period of time. And, and so it's, it's interesting that he's saying, don't walk away from the body. Don't let anything come between you and your desire to stir up love and good works within the community of the local church. Make sure that you don't stop doing that. And it's so interesting that, that in a time that there's been so much anxiety and frustration and exhaustion that that I feel like I hear from, from the church as a whole. I, 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 I hear a lot more stirring up of the fears and the rights than stirring up love and good works from those who call Jesus Lord. And, and, and so I think there's this thing that we need to take a moment to reflect and think about how we are living out the things that are our inheritance, the rights that we have because of Jesus. I find it's, it's interesting that so often I, I can get so focused on the rights that I have as an American rather than the rights that Jesus calls me to to stir up love and good deeds of others. And, and, and so, so here he, he goes on, and, and uh, in, in verse, the next verse, he says, uh, it's kind of a weird, it's, it seems weird and maybe out of place, but it actually makes total sense. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Then he goes on and talks about the law that they were familiar with and some of the requirements and, 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 and what it had to do with, with, with discipline and punishment and that kind of stuff. But, but here's, here's what he's saying here that is so significant. Because we can read that and say, oh, if you deliberately sin, like we're thinking of, you know, this person's rejecting the truth that Jesus has and they're, they're just deliberately sinning. What he's saying is that, 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 that when you have God's knowledge and when you grow to know what God expects and what God values 
And you know those things like these Jewish believers had. Like we have in common with them. We have a lot of knowledge about what God wants, don't we? And what God desires for us. When you have that knowledge and then you decide to sin, it's deliberate sin. If you have knowledge that something is sinful and you do it anyway, it's not an accident. You don't fall into sin, you deliberately sin. And and God can deal with that, but don't pretend it's something that it's not. Because when we know, like from the Bible, that, that adultery is sin, and we know that, and we go and do that, it's not an accident, it's a deliberate decision we made, and God can bring healing out of that and forgive those things. But see, we think of things like that, but here's really what, what the question is for you and I. What truth do you have that you're ignoring? What truth do you have right now from Scripture that you're ignoring? That was basically what the Holy Spirit brought, brought to my heart, is what, Matt, what truth do you have that you're ignoring right now? And even going a step deeper, what What truth are you passing on in favor of another because of your preference or your comfort? How about this? Truth in Scripture is to speak about other people with respect and in the same way you would want to be spoken about. And another truth in Scripture is to stand up for what's right. And it's interesting that I see many people ignoring the truth of how we speak about others in the way they reference different governing officials. Anytime I call, if I were to call the governor, Governor Nuisance, that's me ignoring truth in Scripture and deliberately sinning. Because I am in favor of a different truth. And I felt some conviction. The author goes on. And he says, in verse 29, he says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, in other words, has received Jesus and hears his truth, but then deliberately sins and says, I don't care about that truth, or or, I'm going to prefer a different truth over another truth. He says, he says, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In other words, what he says there, he says this. He says that, that God does respond to sin, even though sometimes it feels like he doesn't. God does not let his people persist in sin. God will deal with his people who are in sin. And that is a scary place to be. 
And there's this other part that, that, that we look around and we say, well, well, we see all of these people in the church and, and in maybe our, our family of, of Christ, and, and we look around and we say, but this person, they seem so much they were following God, but it just seems like they're, they're, all, they're just going completely opposite. And there's this thing in Israel and the church that is this idea of, of from but not of. In fact, John mentions it in 1 John chapter 2. He says, speaking about these people who were formerly part of the church, and now they're off promoting false doctrine. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They may have been with us and in our community, but they weren't ever really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This idea of endurance. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have the knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And it's the same thing as Israel, that there are those in Israel who are not of Israel. And those are those in the church that are not of the church. See, the reality is that not everyone in the church building or in the church community is actually a child of God. And so he says, he says, look, be careful what you do with your knowledge. Because when you have knowledge, you're responsible for it. Then he says this, moving in, he says, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So, so he says, remember before when you were first enlightened. Remember when you first met Jesus. Remember when your eyes were opened and you saw that Jesus really was the Messiah. That he really did come to save and, and he came to fulfill the law. See, they're kind of growing weary at this point. And there's a temptation to just do what comes natural. And so he glances back and he says, remember when you were first enlightened? And, and you think about this. They were first enlightened, they received Jesus, and then they went through suffering. Which is kind of maybe a, the opposite of some evangelism tactics where we say, hey, just receive Jesus and, and he will fix your life. And maybe there were some of these believers who was like, that's what I bought into. No one came to me and said, hey, Jesus is going, he is the real answer, but just so you know, because he's about you becoming like him and being transformed into his image, and everything else is predisposed the opposite, you'll actually probably experience more suffering. And so he says, back when you were enlightened, then you endured a suffering. Well, what kind of a suffering did they endure? He goes in and gives some examples. He explains what they endured. Listen to the list of what they experienced in the past. He says in verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So being said nasty things to and affliction, even maybe some bad things were done to them. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. In other words, choosing to stand alongside the vulnerable. Those who are treated poorly and they chose to stand with them and they ended up getting treated poorly as well. And then he says, 
for you had compassion on those in prison. So the, 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 those who, who were the worst of society, they had compassion on and they stood next to them and gave them hope. And then the society began to treat them like criminals as well. And, and I think of those things that, that he describes, that, that here there's this idea of, of being publicly, publicly attacked. Okay, can I deal with public attack? Okay, I, I think I can handle that. How about partnering with the vulnerable? See, the thing about partnering with the vulnerable is we tend to choose the vulnerable we want to partner with, and the ones that we maybe don't agree with as much, we don't partner with them. But they were, we partner with the vulnerable. We don't put one vulnerable more over the other. We partner with those who are vulnerable. And we stand alongside and we suffer with them. That's kind of hard. That's a big ask, I think. Or compassion for those who are known as the despicables of society. I mean, that can be kind of hard. Here's the one that loses me in this whole list of, 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 of treatment and persecution. He says, after all that, he says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I'm out. Second Amendment protects this house and this land. Like, nope, you can't come in here and take my property. And if you do take your pro my property, I don't think I'm going to be joyful about it. Think about what he said. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How does anyone do that? I don't believe I'm mature enough to handle that that well, to joyfully accept the plundering of my property. I don't know if I've seen that spirit in the church during this pandemic. I've seen a lot of lines drawn in the sand, I haven't seen a lot of people joyfully sitting at home recognizing what God might be doing. I haven't seen many people joyfully wearing a mask because they see further than what's right in front of them. I mean, I, I don't like masks and I have a hard time wearing masks but I certainly will wear a mask before I joyfully let someone plunder my property. <laughs> it's not really that big of a sacrifice for me. But here's, here's the thing, and listen to what he says. How did these people do this? Here's how they did it. He says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I want you to just think about that for a second and let that sink in because here's what he's saying is that all of those things, whether it's a good reputation, whether it's being treated good or bad, whether it's being thrown into the bucket of people that you don't really do the same things that they do, but you have compassion on them, and so you're, you're categorized as them, and you're mistreated like they're mistreated, and that your property is plundered, that he says you, they realize if you have your focus right, you realize that you have a better and abiding possession than all of those things, better than a good reputation, better than all the land and houses that money can buy, better than, than anything else, you yourselves have a better and abiding possession, one that will last and cannot be taken away. 
And as I was looking through this and God was moving me through this, the question came up is this, have you lost sight of your better and abiding possession in the midst of this? Don't lose sight of your better and abiding possession, which is Jesus. He cannot be taken away. And the rights that you have in Christ cannot be taken away. So the author goes on and he says this. He says, therefore, and the therefore is connected to this, that you know that you yourselves have a better and abiding possession, Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Here's what you need. And he says, here's what you need. And this is what God has laid on my heart that we need because we've faced a little bit of difficulty. And at least speaking for myself, I'm not sure I've reacted that well. He says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. What he says is, he says is that you need to have endurance. Endurance is that without endurance, we will get exhausted, short-sighted, and frustrated. And frankly, I think exhausted, short-sighted, and frustrated describes much of the church of Jesus Christ today. Which means that the same predicament that the Jewish believers that this is written to back in the first century, we have the same need that they have. We need endurance. And it's interesting because when I think of endurance, I think of, so for me, I... I, I, I run and I, and I exercise a lot. Uh, but I think I'm weird because I might be one of the few people who, who do that, that degree of training and I have zero plan or desire to compete. Because why would you want to run in a group of people? There's people there. Like, no, I don't want to run in a group of people. I don't want to be in a race. I'm doing this because I really like to drink a lot of Mountain Dew and eat Mr. T's Donuts. And so that's what I do, and my, my cardio is in great condition. Not sure how my arteries are, but I think they're fine. I mean, I can't see them, so, you know, out of sight, out of mind, maybe. But, but, but I, I so, so, like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, on a Friday, I'll run from my house, and I'll run to, to Riverbank and back, and I'll have a really great pace time, and it, and it, and it, and, and, but I'm not training really for a race, I'm doing it because it's just what I want to do. And the reality is that, that I have to go farther and faster and harder, and I have to do things so that my endurance can get better. I remember when I was in high school and I ran track, and I did all of the short stuff in track. And, and I remember when we had to do the mile warm-up, which just seemed way, like, who would run a mile? And so, like, I remember my friend and I would be at the back of the group, and we would run over this hill and swing on the swing sets, where no one could see us. And then when we saw the group come back, we would run back and pretend we ran the mile. And, and, and now I, I just realized that, that that mile running, now with, with what I've done and what I, how I've trained is a mile is nothing now. It's not a big deal. But here's the thing. Are you building endurance 
spiritually and in your walk with Christ. How do you build endurance? Here's one way, is you have to work on your cardio, the condition of your heart, and you work on that through humility and repentance. That's how you work on your cardio to build endurance as a believer. You also have to focus on what is the focus of your heart. Jesus talks about our treasure. What do you treasure? And if you treasure Jesus, that builds endurance. If you treasure everything else, you won't have endurance. How about resistance training or repetition training? Spiritual disciplines, keeping the Sabbath and Bible study, prayer, praise, resisting evil, both internal and external, and obedience. That creates endurance. And your diet what have, you been, what have you been taking in? Here's my question, and I don't know if this applies to many of you, all of you, or none of you. What if you spent as much time in Scripture as you do listening to the news and on social media? How different would your perspective be? What is your diet? And see, one of the principles of growth is that you have to expose yourself to damage and that results in repair, repair and growth and strength. That your body has to be torn down to grow. And frankly, that's the same in our spiritual growth. And that's the role of suffering and affliction and tribulations and adversity. When we actively choose and not run from affliction, tribulation, suffering and adversity, then we rest in God's grace. He builds us and he gives us endurance. See, our tradition teaches us to avoid these things which will not result in endurance and you won't last. So as, as, as we walk through this first week, what, what am I hearing from God? What has God been saying to me? Here's the revelation that God gave me about me and, 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 and I pass along to the church. Revelation is this, the revealing is this, that our faith is fragile. That's what I've learned from this pandemic is that our faith is fragile. It takes very little to tip us over. And why is it fragile? Because our faith is unfortunately filled with impurities. And impurity is something that ruins the uncontaminated nature of something else. Like, there's all kinds of water impurities. The water that we drink is not as clear and clean as we think it is because there's all kinds of impurities that gets into water. There's suspended particles, which is sand and mud. There's heavy metals like lead and cadmium and arsenic and iron maiden and, and there's chemical, industrial. I couldn't resist. You can't say heavy metals and say iron and not maiden and live. It's sinful. Anyway, um, <laughs> there's chemical and industrial waste, which is like nitrate, or mercury, or fluorides, insert Freddy. But anyway, runoff, there's runoff pesticides that goes into water. And then there's naturally occurring impurities like fluorides and nitrates and arsenic. And so the water we see, there's, there's water that isn't that great, but it looks okay. And so we need to build endurance. You see, there are impurities in our faith that make it fragile and then it lacks endurance. The more impurities present, the less endurance you will have to become like Jesus, let alone finish well. And so here's what, I, here's what I am asking you to do this week. And I'm asking you to follow through with this and take this seriously. First thing is this, what impurities are present in your faith? 
That's a question that you have to answer, that I have to answer. Make a, physical, make a list. Write down a list. What are the impurities that have seeped in like water into my faith? See, if you're not honest and ruthless with yourself, then you won't grow. See, as I said before, that, that every structure and philosophy in this world is predisposed to make us like it. And when those things seep into our faith, then our faith becomes impure and fragile and we won't endure. Next week, I am going to be sharing with you what God has led me to than the impurities in my faith. And I just want you to know that you're not going to move forward until you take an honest look at yourself. Second thing that I would challenge you to do is this. What is your endurance training program? Do you even have a training endurance program for your life with Christ in your faith? And if you do, does it, does it include pursuing struggle? Because unless we experience struggle, we will not build endurance. And, and, and so... So what is, what is, do you even have one? Mike's going to come back up, some band members, and, and we're going to share communion together. But I want you to know something good, good news. And that's this, that Jesus is enough. He is our inheritance. And if he is the only thing we inherit, inherit he is enough. And then in verse 37, just to kind of remind us that, that even though we are in a time of struggle and difficulty, he says, yet a little while and the coming, the coming one will come and he will not delay. That Jesus is coming. And finally, he leaves us with this, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. It is possible for you and I to have a faith that is not fragile, that is strong and will endure. And that's what Jesus calls us to. As we reflect a little bit, we're not going to sing, but the band's going to play a little bit. And think this morning as you prepare your heart for communion here and at home, what does my faith look like? What are the impurities? Begin opening yourself up to the Holy Spirit, pointing you in the direction of where your faith is fragile.